Global Scale Network Design with Malcolm Budin, episode 92. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziggulets out there. We have another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than those gigabytes. Hey, we strive to provide real-world context around technology. What's up, everybody? I hope everyone is doing great. Zig Ziga here, and welcome to episode 92 of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast. Once again, I'm Zig Ziga. I'm here to help you with network engineering, network design, and network architectures. And today we are discussing global scale network design. Helping me today is my good friend and well-known industry expert, Malcolm Budin. Hey, real quick, Malcolm has been on the show a couple times. Malcolm is a seasoned network and security professional with 20 years of experience in the IT industry. He has worked for various enterprise customers directly along with ISPs, internet service providers, and network integrators. He is currently the chief executive officer and lead consultant at MNB Networks, and he specializes in network and security design and delivery for customers ranging from small to large global enterprises. And that's all we're talking about today is global enterprises, global scale network design. Malcolm is a Cisco certified design expert and holds a various other certifications from Cisco, Fortinet, and Palo Alto Networks. Aside from consulting, Malcolm has developed a training offering. And let me, let me, this is extremely important. I want to foot stomp on this. He has built a training offering focused on real world and real life network design. This is extremely critical for all of you to hear. If you want to check out his training, you can go to training.mnbnetworks.tech. I'll have the link in the show notes as well, but he has a real-world training program to teach you how to do network design and wider network design and all these things that, that we just don't get out there today. So go check it out. Hey, Malcolm. Thanks for joining me again, buddy. I know it's been some time. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, my friend. How are you? Oh, man, I, I am on cloud nine. It is a great day, uh, getting a lot of things done, making things happen. Um, I'm super pumped and excited for today's show. Uh, and just so everyone knows, we're going to talk about global scale network design. Um, if I said that correctly, please feel free to correct me throughout this process, Malcolm, as always. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm excited. Yeah. Another way to phrase it is probably big, massive networks. <laughs> big, massive networks. There you go. <laughs> Extremely yeah. large, massive networks. That, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so before we jump in, though, as always, um, can you give us a quick rundown of who you are, what you do, um, that kind of stuff? The Cliff Notes version, as always. Sure. I'll keep it brief because I've uh, actually appeared on one of your previous shows, and I'm easy to find on the internet, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn slash in slash Malcolm Budin, all lowercase, and Twitter, the same uh, alias, Malcolm Budin. I've been in networking and well, IT for about 20 years, the majority of that in networking since about 2003. I've graduated with a degree in network computing, worked at enterprises in the UK, Cisco Partners, ISPs and various things like IT outsourcing companies, etc., etc. Um, and for the last four years or so, I've been working for myself, I suppose. Uh, I have a small consultancy called MNB Networks, and 
we work with large um, enterprises mainly, funnily enough. So we're a small organization, but we plug skills gap, I suppose, and design mainly across global enterprises, ranging up to fortune companies. So it's pretty interesting work the last few years. And that's really the the basis for today's discussion. And I'm CCDE certified, as you well know. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Zig and I go way back to probably about 2015 when we were studying for the yeah. CCDE together. Seven years ago, right? Did I do that math right? Time Six five. years ago? Seven? I don't, I can't math. I can't math today. <laughs> so, but welcome again, bud. I appreciate coming back today. And we did do a show. Um, it's been a couple years, a few years, back in 2018, just so everyone knows, it's episode 25. It was Designing for Data Center Migrations and Application Mobility. Um, it was a great show, so if you didn't listen to that show, I highly recommend going back in time. Um, have a good listen to that show. Malcolm and I talked about how to migrate your, between data centers. Um, it was a great deep dive, uh, network design focused uh, show, so feel free to Go look at that show, listen to it. Uh, a quick link for you is zigbits.tech slash 25. All right, buddy. So today we're going to talk about global scale network or large extreme networks or whatever the wording is, right? We're going to talk about some network stuff. So um, I'm going to just start. What 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 is the difference from your perspective between a small or smaller scale network design and a global scale network design? All right, so there's probably a lot of different answers to that question, and let me let me put some clarity around um, my background and working, I suppose, specifically in in the integrator space or the network integrator space and value added reseller space as a engineer consultant, then uh, moving into pre sales and systems engineering and doing a bit of all of the above at most of those places. The main focus at the integrators and ISPs that I worked at, they were ranging probably small to medium enterprises and those scales of projects. Some examples of projects that you would get might be replacement of a core switch, but the core switch is perhaps servicing 20 switch stacks at the access layer or it might be a data center core rollout with all sorts of weird and wonderful protocols. And if we're talking Nexus, like multi-VDC with OTV and calculating the right amount of ports and things for when you, you know, taking into account. So I guess that's being a bit specific, but I guess the, the thing that I'm getting at there is what I find with smaller organizations, you can easily walk into a project and discover that it is really, really complicated to fix a business problem. So if you've got a Cisco Nexus with multiple VDCs and OTV and VRFs within the VDCs and you have to migrate from a flat network, for example, that's maybe like a year-long project or six months or a year or even maybe longer depending on the complexity but the reason that it's so long is the complexity you've got so many different protocols so many different layers so many things that you can break and 
all you might actually be doing is refreshing an end-of-life piece of kit. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that, that might be a small network design, but a very complex network design. Another example might just be if you're changing out the corporate firewalls, for example, and that could be a long process. I mean, it might take three months, it might take six months, if you have to plan a lot, because you think a pair of firewalls, but again, in the lovely world of network virtualization, if you have firewalls, regardless of vendor, and it has the capability to have one big box or a pair of big boxes that is then virtualized into multiple different firewalls, and that firewall or those firewalls and the virtual firewalls are your corporate segmentation policy. And what I mean by that is you route everything via the firewall. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you want to move away from that dependency and move to something like SGTs or DNA center with overlays or something like that. So even if that was a small network, that would be really, really complicated. Now, what I find in comparison with global enterprises, um, one thing actually I didn't mention with those examples, it's normally you have a couple of data centers and it might be in-country. I know the US isn't, uh, <laughs> the US is like multiple uh, Scotland's where I'm from, but you know, if it's within state, for example, in, in your case, Zig, then that would perhaps have a couple of data centers and the scale of it, you're thinking two data centers and the sites that need to communicate with the data centers in a region effectively. Where things get a little bit, or quite a lot different, I should say, in enterprise scale or large enterprise scale is that you effectively have that footprint that I just described, but you have it in every corner of the globe and effectively replicated in every corner of the globe. And when I say corner of the globe, I mean global region. So not like a region like a state or a small country. I'm talking like Asia Pac, EMEA, North America and Canada are normally grouped together and then Latin America. And you and, and if you then start, we've not even got anywhere near the tip of the iceberg yet, but when <laughs> yeah. you start thinking about that, I'll, I'll just mention a few things before I take a break and, and hand it back to you, are things like compliance, quality of infrastructure in the ground for WAN connectivity, shipping, getting things to site through customs, <laughs> because if, you're, if you're if you're running a project from a, a certain country, like I don't know, somewhere in Europe, like the Netherlands or the Nordics or Germany, somewhere that's easy to get in and out of, easy to get kit in and out of. But if you're running a, a project from there, then it might be difficult to get kit in to other countries in other parts of the world, or you might have to source locally and things like that. That's going into some detail. So I suppose that's where we're talking about scale. Instead of like effectively being in one location where you might do 
very simple or very complex projects, regardless of what that is. When you go global scale, just remember whatever you do in region one, you're going to probably have to replicate in region two, three and four and perhaps in multiple places within those other three regions and in the cloud now. And just the to cloud. add that for a Yeah, add the cloud onto that. Uh, I mean, I, I can. there's so much to unpack, right? There's so much to talk about here. I, I think the definition of the example you gave of uh, you know, smaller scale, still complex in times, right? Still things that are could, could potentially be complex and take a while to complete, like that core migration, right? It's an end of life device. We're going to, you know, refresh that device. It's very complicated. There's a lot of things going on it or running on it. And now we have to migrate it, right? But that could be one physical location in one state or one, lo- you know, one, one area. But then your, your, your transition to the global aspect where you're breaking up the design elements by region, right? And that region is traditionally based on the regions in the world. You said like um, Amir, I think uh, you said Asia Pac. Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but is that what you said? Yeah, so EMEA, so Europe, Middle East and Africa are normally grouped together. US and Canada or North America and Canada, Latin America. So Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, all these countries and then but sometimes as well depending on which organization you're working with if you go to global enterprise one they might actually group north america canada and latin america as the americas mm. so there's actually only three global regions so there's europe asia pacific always is on its own because it has some very stringent requirements around compliance in certain countries and then America but there is effectively four global regions but some organizations just group the Americas together Uh, so yeah that would be the that would be the the main global regions that was referring to no that's great that's great right because I I I didn't know that, so I'll be honest. I didn't I didn't know that honestly, that people group uh, the Americas together at times. Um, so so you mentioned like things would have to be done. So whatever you do in like region one, you might have to do in region two. In any of these circumstances, are there like if you make a change, a design element change in one region, does it have a negative effect on another region? I'm going to say it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> just, it just for a change. I thought, you know, what are we like 10 minutes in and I've said it depends already. But there you go. Um, I'm waiting for it. it. I was waiting for it. i got a timer somewhere in here. <laughs> it, 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 it does. It is dependent on what the what the design change is. Um, so one of the things, for example, that you might think about Let's talk about WAN design because I'm effectively living in WAN and SD-WAN at the moment and have been for the last few years. But some of the things that you might consider there are if you go right back to the start of the design and you say, oh, yeah, we want to do an SD-WAN. That sounds great. We can get overlays and we can get segmentation and then we can do this and that and the next thing. The first thing that you might say as a network designer is, well, how are we going to deal with China? And because there's the the great firewall there and there's challenges with getting certain types of traffic and encryption and things like that. And that, and there's also other countries 
Turkey and Russia have their own white compliance considerations where and other countries probably have the same thing where you have to break out of country to the internet in that country. Mm. For example, I think in Turkey, if you get an, an ISP link in Turkey, you wouldn't be allowed to use a web proxy in Frankfurt to tunnel over to and then break out of Frankfurt. You have to break out from the ISP in Turkey. Wow. Or that was certainly a requirement that came up in one of the designs, the global designs that I was working on. But don't uh, don't don't uh, totally hold me uh, to that. That's just something that a design constraint that came up. So forget the country. That could be a constraint that comes up. Therefore, if you change the design in that country, it definitely, it, it, or if you follow the compliance, I should say, in that country, that's definitely different. If everywhere else is going through a web proxy over a GRE tunnel to you know, one of the different vendors that's available for doing that and then providing SASE services. Yeah. Um, that could that could be one consideration. And then the other one might be, uh, I don't know, if you are looking at, a, a, we'll get onto this a little bit, like the scaling aspect of it in a little while, but just think about traffic flows. When you've got four regions, traffic flows, and you, if you're in an SD-WAN environment, and I'm using SD WAN because it is a really interesting. People think, or some people might think, it's easy because you just point to a controller and you click. But it's actually when you when you start getting into underlays and overlays and things like that, then it's actually I think it it could be more complex. But that's subjective. Um, where I was going with that is that if you go right back to the start of the design. There's a simple design decision really at the face of it that you have to make a decision about traffic flows in a global design, i.e., let's say customer wants to do an SD-WAN deployment and their strategy is complete internet everywhere. That's great, all good. Now, the net, you, you start peeling off a layer and you say, okay, global internet deployment in the underlay, no MPLS is being used. What do we have to think about in the in the internet design? There's different tiers of internet connectivity, which equals different quality of internet connection, which equals different types of performance, which equals different types of traffic flows, and so on and so on. Now, when you then start looking at that, you also have to think about stuff like, let's say we've got four regions, the four that I mentioned, we split out North America and Canada and, and Latin America, have Europe and then Asia Pacific. And we say everything is on the internet. And in true overlay style, a site in Europe wants to talk to another site in Europe. Then what do we what do we what do we decide here? That's fine. We want we keep that in region. So European site one talks to European site two, and it never leaves leaves Europe for that communication. However, if we want a site in Europe to talk to a site in Asia Pac, how are we going to how do we want to achieve that? Do we want to just 
leave it to chance and say, go directly over the internet. So you might have like a SD1 controller in your data center for your control plane. The control plane tells you if you want to high, high end site in Europe, you want to speak to that site in Asia Pack, build a tunnel to this IP address and it tells you what IP address to go to. And then you could build a tunnel directly over the internet. Another way that you could do it is if you have all your traffic in Europe talking to each other directly, but if you want to then talk to Asia Pack, then you route into the data center in Europe across a backbone network to a data center in Asia Pack, and then over perhaps a local MPLS connection that might mitigate some of the challenges around, you know, the Great Firewall and these compliance needs. And that's just one example. That's <laughs> yeah. just one design decision that you need to make or think about, and, and it's around about traffic flows. But even within Europe, you might say, okay, um, I need to be careful about the supplier that I select because if we go for service provider one and they've only got three pops in France and then I want to I want to talk to a site, another site in France, you might have to backhaul to Germany in order to then speak to another site in France if your provider doesn't have that capability. And that goes within that's that's within region as well. So, so it sounds like there's a lesson learned here uh, for others that might be venturing into the global scale network design realm. And one of those lessons learned that I'm tracking here is you have to understand your your traffic flows. You have to you have to pre-script how the traffic flow is going to work. Um, you can't just assume that and let it kind of do its own thing. You really need to be clear that hey, no, if it's in Europe and and we're going to go to, you know. Asia Pack or wherever, you know, we're going to come back into the data center, use the, you know, data center interconnect link of some sort, and then transition over to a wide area network in the local region, like you mentioned, right? But like, I want, I want people to understand that, like, you actually have to take it and, and you have to design, but you have to, you have to design from a individual use case on every flow um, for your traffic. And I was going to get into Malcolm, like, just internet access. Like, I think I think you're getting into even like, how do you go from one location to another location? But like, if we take one region, right? And that region has IP addresses. There's probably an IP address scheme. I'm, I'm assuming, right? There's probably some sort of translation happening on some sort of device, NAT or PAT or combination thereof. Um, so, you know, how would you do just, just basic internet access between all four regions. So basic internet access, there's well, right. So the other thing that might or might not help or or aid this discussion is if you start thinking about internet access as we know it, I suppose, is going to a data center where there's a firewall that you break out and it either sends you somewhere or you... Uh, like a web proxy when I say somewhere, or it sends you to the internet and there's some kind of on-prem 
web filtering capability or the the cloud-based web filtering solutions where laptops either have clients or some mechanism so if you're roaming and you're not even on the the vpn so like you know umbrella um type functionality uh, zscaler palo alto prisma fortinet all these vendors have all got solutions or different way shapes and forms of delivering it and uh, it basically if you're talking about a laptop getting onto the internet there's normally either a client or some sort of configuration in the registry or something like that. I'm not really a Windows guy, but that's that's kind of how that's achieved. If we're talking about WAN sites, we really are starting to see the shift in general terms towards having internet breakout, either full internet on the sites or a hybrid model, depending on, like, because some, some companies... For example, production and manufacturing and uh, process control networks might just like that comfort of having an SLA between private a private circuit, but for everything else, they punt it over to uh, the internet. Now, when we think about that, the main traffic flows that I see uh, at, at sites, I should say, that are adopting internet-first strategies are that outbound from the site, you basically go via a cloud web proxy over a GRE, an encrypted GRE tunnel to a web proxy. And that that provider, effectively, you're going to someone else's data center instead of your own, and it's a service. And then they, the policy that you have in your instance of that, and this is what I mean, Zscaler, uh, Umbrella, Palo Alto, whatever, Whatever, whatever the technology is, is um, that's that they and then they can do things like SSL decryption and things like that, which takes the headache away of having a firewall on every site and things like that. But going back to the traffic flows, so that's an outbound web browsing directly from site, but via someone else's data center. Now, the other traffic flow in the other direction to the sites doesn't typically happen that I see anyway, there might be some applications that are hosted at local sites that traditionally they were accessed directly. But if you were going in to redesign that network, you would probably want to bring that through a central point or migrate that service to the cloud or whatever. Now, the cloud is another one because people say the cloud Actually, before I move on to that, because it's all kind of interrelated, the instance that I gave or the example that I gave where you go via this magical cloud service to do your web filtering, that's all great. But on average, I would say, and this isn't at any particular vendor, but on average, having spoken to quite a few different vendors on that type of Secure Access Services Edge or SASE model, as it's being uh, called. In general terms, there's normally for each vendor around about 50 pops or up to about 50 pops across the globe that have these services. And then when you start investigating the, the, the services that they can do, not all of those 50 pops. So that's maybe 50 pops across 
30 or 40 countries. Mm-hmm. Not everywhere. And what I've seen is that, or, or some of the feedback that I've seen from some customers, and I won't mention any vendors, but from what I've seen is there's not enough pops for us to do this globally. So it's another scaling thing. So it might be country one might have two pops in order to deliver like secure internet or secure access services edge, web proxy via their pop. And they might have two or three pops in that country, but the country next door to it, I'll just use, I'm not picking on Spain and Portugal, but let's just say Spain and Portugal are right next to each other. And um, there's, there's a proxy or a pop in Barcelona and there's a pop in Madrid, but there's no pop in Lisbon or the one in Lisbon is cut down. So if somebody wanted to use that particular vendor service in Portugal, they would need to go to uh, Spain. And then, and then, yeah, and then in certain countries that have the, the compliance restrictions, which I'll not name any more countries because I don't want to offend anyone. I'm just using them as examples, but you get the you get the point that basically. Mm-hmm. But so, so it, I, I'm I'm sorry. I just basic internet access is complicated. <laughs> like 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 I just want to make that clear to everyone. Like basic <laughs> internet access from a global scale design can be very complicated, and you have to treat it individually for each region, right? Like, and I mean, in the U S I don't know if you have to do the, the URL filtering option. Um, I actually have never seen that Malcolm before. So that's, that's quite interesting that, that you're seeing that a lot, um, in different countries where, you know, you have to get a service and you're, you're kind of just punting your web traffic to that proxy, that web proxy in someone else's data center to get out to the internet. Um, but yeah, outbound outbound web proxy. So as I say, it's similar to like kind of Cisco Umbrella, Zscaler. Um, can't remember the, the the actual product, or I think it's like Palo Alto Prisma Access and things like that. And these are all things that basically you can have like web filter, but there's multiple other things that you can do. So it can do SSL decryption and on that web filter, mm-hmm. for example. So as you're going out to uh, an encrypted website, it, it executes the web policy in the cloud, but with decrypted traffic. So you don't have to then load your environment with loads of firewalls and uh, the, the routers and things like that that are capable of doing SSL offload. Now, I'm not saying that's the the only way and the, the only correct way to do things, but that's what's happening in the industry and it's definitely happening in the global scale network design, but the challenges that are being posed are things like, but not limited to, you're not in enough places for us to be able to use that service or mm-hmm. the performance is suffering. And one of the other things, if we just talk about, if we if we, if we shift slightly or pivot slightly, then, so forget web browsing and going to websites. Now think about the cloud. The cloud um, <laughs> is, uh, is just a funny one to me because I hear it used all the time in many different, like the, the term cloud, right? But what is it? Again, it's data centers, somebody else's data center, right? And 
again, within a country, you might have, you've got regions and availability zones. And availability zones are like one or two data centers within a region. So London, for example, might be a region, but then there's two or three data centers which are the, in the availability zone. And these are basically data centers which back each other up. Now, the two main, well, there's three main, obviously, uh, offerings in these cloud environments. There's infrastructure as a service, software as a service, and platform as a service. Platform as a service, I never see ever, really. It probably exists and people probably use it, but my personal experience, I don't see people using that. Infrastructure as a service, it does get used. So that's like basically you set up VPNs or a mechanism to get to servers which are spun up in the cloud. And then you install your own applications on the operating systems. And then there's software as a service. So with the, with the infrastructure as a service, you might say, be, it's pretty obvious that you'd be very specific where you might go, I need a data center in London mm-hmm. and then one in Amsterdam or Brussels or, you know, or, or, or Frankfurt or one of these types of large hub places which are central. And then you have similar sorts of things in the US and Canada and uh, Asia and uh, and so on and Brazil and things like that. Now, when we start looking at that the 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 infrastructure as a service it's about it's it's kind of in our control as network architects because we can architect saying right well that's close to us that's close to us that's not close to us so we'll we'll choose these data centers and we are kind of in control because we have to set that connection up whether it's an ipsec vpn whether it's an sd1 whether it's a a direct connect of some kind, we have to set that up. When it comes to software as a service, I go to a website to access that, whether it's controlled or not controlled. And the only, and what I'm finding is these global enterprises where maybe 10, five or 10 years ago, even, even going back to five years ago, you buy a SaaS application off a vendor or a, a supplier and you just use it. Now what I'm finding is that in RFPs and um, new network designs, customers, so especially global enterprise customers, they will challenge these companies to say, where are your applications hosted? <laughs> Right, they'll, they'll ask that question to the software as a service supplier, and then they'll also say to the ISP who's providing their internet link, Where is your POP? What data center is your POP in? And they then start. So, if, if you want, if I want to get to Microsoft Azure, uh, if I say to the SaaS application vendor, Where is your application hosted? and they say, Microsoft Azure, Frankfurt. And then I go to the uh, and and this particular data center in Frankfurt, and also this particular data center in Paris. Mm-hmm. Then I would be saying, I want 
my internet connection to come into that data center or as close to it as possible and then for you to have a cross connect of some kind or some mechanism in place already or the capability to route so i'm taking the fastest the fastest route to get to my key applications global enterprises are asking those questions now and i think that when you and i were going through the ccde and there was a whole that service provider technologies and that's enterprise technologies they're they're merging yeah they're merging. absolutely hard hardcore merging um so no i i i think Going through that process shows a lot of complexity um, and also interdependencies as well. Uh, I like that you de- you defined SaaS and infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. Um, you know, so so I was going to ask some questions, but uh, I think I'm just going to walk through this this thought process in my head here and then maybe questions will come out of it. So let's say I have a SaaS application and it's zigssaasapplication.com, right? We'll just make it zigs, you know, awesome saasapplication.com. Um, I think you're onto something there, mate. Yeah, Get right? it marketed, Get it marketed and uh, released. <laughs> released, right? Yeah. Make millions. Um, yeah. So I have this. Now, now, and I think I think on on from a user's perspective, all they care about is that I'm going to type that in my my browser of choice on my computer of choice, and all I care is that it works, right? It's quick, it's efficient, it works. I can get to it, complete my job, or you know, if I'm not doing my job, I'm watching videos, whatever, right? I'm watching YouTube, um, Netflix. So the implications though on the back end is what I want to talk about. Like you mentioned where the application resides, like where is it hosted in a specific data center, certain regions. Like I want to know, like how are people even getting to the application, right? Like how are we validating that the data is actually at that location as well? Because there's the back end of the applications data, right? I mean, I don't know any application that doesn't include data. And so I'm even thinking like the implications here of a SaaS application that is global scale. How do you replicate that data? Yeah, I think that's, um, I don't know, to be honest, it's like I don't really know the answer to how that data is replicated because I think that's more um, entering into the realm of being a cloud guru. Ah, see, yeah. But what I would say is that how I understand these things are that in order to get to the closest, we're talking about technologies, the same old stuff as we've always talked about, like Anycast, DNS mm. combined. That said, it might be, you know, I don't know. I honestly don't know the que- the answer to that. Yeah, it's, it's a question that was it top of mind. That, I, that, that would be the type of thing that I would I would ask a supplier and say, you, <laughs> there you you're go, saying everyone. this is a global, or, there, or for anyone that's listening, and if you're going through a SaaS application um, process and selecting and going through a, a bid or an RFP and you're the network team, there's a question for you to ask. This this application is global. How do I know, know that I'm going to the right place? But even, even just even an access in the right data. And then that opens up a whole load of other things about compliance. Again, that this will be something that you'll see over and over and over. Compliance, standardization. 
across because that's what big global networks need, compliance and standardization in order to operate effectively and stay up and be predictable as to how they're actually going to behave. And, and then data sovereignty. We didn't even get into like data sovereignty. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of where I was going next. And when you're when you're talking about so there's there's the question, some questions. It's like how the how where is my data located? That's one question. How is it secured? If it's a if it's a global platform and it's a SaaS application, how is it secured from other tenants on the platform the same platform? Um, how do I make sure that I get the most optimal route? And this goes back to me talking about they're saying, where is your application hosted? to the application provider, and then they say to this, the ISP, where is your POP? What, what's the route that my traffic takes in order to get to this Microsoft Azure data center? Microsoft Azure data center one, two, three. How do I get from this site to that data center over your inter- internet connection? We're not even talking about private networks here. We want to know who you're peered with, how we route to that specific location. Maybe not for every application, but for key applications or key services or key locations, like these are the cloud data centers, Azure, GCP, AWS. These are what we need to prioritize. How do you ensure that your solution gets us there in the most efficient manner? Yeah, I mean, so so I think that is extremely valuable, uh, those questions, right? Especially for people like, you know, network engineers, security engineers that are going through the process of identifying, you know, where are we going to, you know, have this SaaS application or where are we going to have this infrastructure that we're hosting, right? This uh, infrastructure as a, as a service offering and, and where is our data going to be, right? These are all the things that you have to think about. Compliance is huge. I mean, compliance is one of the biggest ones because each country has different compliance standards, and as a company, if you are that big global company, now you have to you have to follow all those different standards for your data, for your applications. I mean, it's crazy the implications here. And you're living this, Malcolm. You're living this every day, right? That's what you're doing. That's what you've been doing for the last three and a half, four years. This is this is awesome. Yeah. And it's 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 really and and with all this taken into consideration, one of the things that I learned quite quickly, going from that. Uh, that you know that network integrator space where it's just like crazy like you know you got that you got maybe got three four five projects small really complex projects that are going on and it might not all be on you you might be part of a team but it's like right that's done next right that's done next 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 and you're jumping about all over the place and then mixed in all that there's like all these little intricacies that you have to account for and big global organizations with it with a standard standardization sorry and the predictability i suppose of the network but there's a there's a spanner that can be thrown into the works with that which i'll come back to in a second but the, the key objective, really, I suppose, with a big, large global network and the preference is that stability and predictability is key or king, I should say, because and repeatability. So whereas you, you have these like small, intricate 
designs and implementations in the small to medium enterprise space. And it's not always like that, but I'm just saying you're more likely to get them there. And, and I'm not saying that you never get them in the large global. But what I suppose I'm saying is that if you could have a less feature-rich, stable and repeatable and easy to operate and troubleshoot network that does the job. So I'm not saying it's not setting the header alight, but it's doing the job. And that thing that you said about put my laptop on, I can get to my stuff, it's acceptable and I can do my job. That's more what global enterprises are after and that they know what they've that's what they strive for is that they want they know what's going to happen in the certainty because if you have an outage at a large global uh, enterprise and a, a site a site going down might mean a production line whole shift might turn up for their work at 8 p.m to do a 12-hour shift and because the network is down because some crazy thing has been implemented rather than just something simple and nobody can work out what it is, those 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people just get sent home for 12 hours or could just get sent home for 12 hours. And that means that 12 hours worth of product or whatever that's being produced at that location has not been And then there'll be a monetary value attached to every single product off the line. So even if it's if it's if it's thirty if it's thirty products are made in a twelve hour period, and they all cost the 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 sale price uh, was a thousand pound, that's thirty grand that's been lost. Yeah, there's an impact because the right? network the network was too complicated to troubleshoot. And I suppose you can apply that to any company, but. In global enterprises, that's why you would say they strive for, you know, it's the same. So if something goes wrong at one site, you've probably seen it before, or you know it's the WAN link, or you know it's an SFP, or you know it's, oh, they, they, that, that configuration isn't standardized with OSPF. Somebody must have changed mm-hmm. something. Or it might look different because an exception has been made because they needed to do something specific on the site. So this all comes back around to, Design, documentation, all the basics, um, all the basics, system, and all that kind of stuff. But it's repeatable. That that's what we strive for. Now, the spanner in the works that I was talking about is big, large global organisations are always making acquisitions. So acquisitions, mergers, and sometimes getting rid of parts of the business that are not making money. So divestitures. So they can go off on their own or they might just divest them for a couple of years and then bring them back in. And whilst these are not part of the wider global standardization or standardized design, they can do whatever they want. So when they're then brought into the equation, that's a spanner in the works. And you can and you can say all you want. You have to have this, 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 this and this done before you can connect to our network. But the reality of it is that there's probably not time and upper management will be saying, why is the network not flexible to just accommodate for this right away? And that's where that's where companies are trying to get to. From what I've seen over the last four years, that's where they're all going. But I'll, uh, I set that six or eight month project in a, 
in a small to medium enterprise is probably a four-year, five-year project in a large global enterprise. So, so um, I think you touched here just now on one of the hardest situations to, to design for. And I would say that acquisitions and, and divestations are the hardest uh, design use cases. Um, I think like building out a new technology or replacing technology isn't traditionally hard. It might be complex, but it's not hard. But when we're talking about stripping away an entity, like a divestation, we're talking about stripping away services and, and components to the services. I mean, a lot of times these companies don't even know what, what is included in the service. And so you got to like pull it out, right? You got to pull it out. And then you got to, when you're all done, both the individual companies that are left have to be able to function and, and run their business, whatever that business is. I mean, that is truly, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do from a design perspective. And I mean, what are your lessons learned? I'll ask that question for divestations and um, an acquisition so far. Oh, man. Uh, the lessons learned, I don't know. There's so, there's so many things that I think that one thing I'm like, so I'm, I'm a complete advocate for design documentation, but as networks are getting more complex, I mean, when I started, when I'd done the Cisco Networking Academy in some year, some time ago, which <laughs> I'll, not, I'll, not name, I'll not name right. But basically just a couple of years four, ago. Just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there was, there was four semesters in it, right? There was, LAN design, local area networks. There was WAN design. Um, I think there was actually a whole semester, like eight weeks on like the OSI model. And then there was, um, I don't know, there was another one that was just, I just remember it being like fully, it was like proper how to crimp a cable and make a, make a crossover where it's a straight through, how to use a multimeter to uh, troubleshoot problems. I learned about protons, neutrons, and electrons, electromagnetic interference, and repeaters, and attenuation, and all these things, right? So if you think back about that, and well, I'm glad that I learned about that, because it's all the physics behind what we do. And you you rarely go into that level of detail day to day, but it's good to know, like to understand, from a, especially from a design perspective. However, now we're, so, and how I would summarize, forget the protons, neutrons, and electrons, think of that as translating to all we had to really worry about was routing and switching. Now, all we have to worry about is routing, switching, data center, spine leaf, wireless, unified communications, IP cameras. We even have like lifts on the network now video is normal and all these things come into come into the equation right so if we go back to if we go back to the question and I try to answer it what what is the where I was going with that is that that previous scenario that I understood uh, that I that I explained routing and switching you could write a design document manually, and then if something changed, you could update it quite easily, probably. If you go to the second scenario, and that's only some of the stuff 
that we have to deal with these days. Mm -hmm. And you have to document the network systems. So I'm not talking about the CCTV systems or the digital signage systems. They're separate, but they just go on the network. So the network design has to accommodate for all the stuff, LAN, WAN, security, wireless, data center, CCTV, digital signage, uh, building management systems and critical critical systems they might be on separate networks but they still have to be documented in the network design if something if, if, if you do that and you put it all which we do we do still do we create hlds lLds for all these things and we document it we go through the project we get it signed off it goes into operations and it never gets updated again <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. something happens. Or it might never even be read again, you know, or a section might be read, like, because that's the bit that keeps on failing or whatever. My thing and lessons learned and where I want to sort of take my consultancy side of my, my company, MNB Networks, is around, it's all around for if you go into a new customer, it's about understanding what you've got. Right, so discoveries, and I don't mean like putting like one of these old legacy tools on. I mean finding a tool that can do everything from discovery, asset inventory, end of life cycle reporting, um, so you so you can see what's on your network, auto documentation, configuration compliance. Now some of these are bells and whistles, and I don't know if you've heard of a thing in the in the manufacturing industries like called digital twin. I have not, no. So it's effectively, if you've got a manufacturing process or something in an industrial network, you can, because these those environments are like, there's all there's things like there's life at risk rather than losing money. You lose money and you could potentially, if a machine malfunctions and somebody's arm gets chopped off as a result kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, but you can effectively have a digital twin to test things in the process before you actually do it on the production production line, for example. Now, there's some tools out there now, the network folks have cottoned onto this, and there's tools out there, and some people are calling it digi a, a digital twin of your network. And what it effectively is, is you can, so you can do a discovery on your network, like all these discovery tools or these monitoring tools have been able to do for probably since the, it was only routing and switching days. Um, but but now they can they like they can do that and they can get and they could probably put like, you know, this site looks like this. But now we're seeing tools that can actually document layer one, two, and three, layer one, two, three information, firewall rules, and then cre effectively create a digital twin so that you could then say, in theory, if I'd done this, if I made this change. And it, it takes all the config and all that from the database. If I make this change, I can effectively test the change on the digital twin. And then if it looks like it's all right, I can press go and then roll it out into the production environment, then still wait to see if it works. And if not, automatically roll it back. Now, when you talk about like mergers and divestigers and things like that, that sort of approach, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say like that's, that's how you do it, but you know, I think that having tools is, is a very minimum, very bare minimum to actually go out and interrogate the network and understand what you've got is is just more imperative now than ever. Because I've I've done, and the reason that this doesn't sound a lot, over my 20-odd year career, I've maybe done, I don't know, between five and 10 
audits on networks. And the reason for that is because it takes three to six months to forever. gather the, get the tools in, gather the information, let it run, look at the net flow, the SNMP, the device list. And then if it's multi-vendor, you might only have like a tool from a specific vendor that can give you loads of information on their kit, but they can just tell you that there's something there for the rest of the kit if it happens to have an SNMP string. So, you know, I think like the discovery piece and understanding, so that's one thing. And then, you know, tools that can auto-generate documentation or like at least diagrams at a layer one, two, and three level so that you can understand what would the impact be if this happened. I think that's where the industry has to go. And you can probably do some of that with like, you know, Python scripts mm -hmm. and programmability in that as well. So you don't always have to buy a big corporate tool in order to do that. But I think that that's that's where I think that to answer your question, it's really it's it's really as you said, it's really hard to it's do hard. divestment and it's time consuming. And I think that the way that we have to look at it is we have to flip it on its head and say, let's embrace these new technologies or new new approaches to working. That you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things around the uh, programmability space across all vendors and including like that includes DevNet and like everyone's got their own little piece to say about it so it's it's changing and I'm, I'm saying to my customers the global customers that I'm working with this now is the biggest shift in networking in my career the last thing that I remember being this significant was VoIP that's and a good, I, that's I, a good I, comparison I, yeah, I include I include um, cloud in that because I don't think cloud's new. I think cloud's just something that's been around. I mean, I put a post on LinkedIn the other day that because I was thinking about it and I was like, this is true. Like we we had a a, a Novell border manager proxy server right at the first place that I worked one Novell. for the whole company, two thousand users. So you used to go back set the proxy in your Internet Explorer to point to this one Novell Border Manager, right? And then that used to do something, don't know what, but it <laughs> done something. And if people just wanted to bypass it and they had an Internet connection, they would just take the tick, but tick button off in the Internet options, but if they knew how to do it. But anyway, that's what we used. And then we migrated to this thing where we still had the tick box, but it was a service called Message Labs, so Message Labs had what they called towers, and they had like web filters, and they had two in two in Europe, two towers, one in Frankfurt and one in Amsterdam. But we had a a VIP, a virtual, uh, virtual IP or a virtual a DNS name or whatever that basically went to Frankfurt first, and then and that was in about two thousand and seven. So I don't think cloud cloud is actually new, um, but. I think that the, the shift that is happening in the networking industry and the software approach and, you know, all the stuff about the service provider seg stuff being used for segmentation like VRFs and, and things like that all coming in. But really the, the programmability side and getting things done instead of going around 50 boxes individually doing it with an inventory and a Python script, whatever it is you need to do, whether it's reading, writing to the device or whatever, that's that's totally, totally changing the way that we work. 
And as I say, the last thing that I can remember that had that big a shift was going from analog and digital phone. Like, so you use the same the same cat ports, uh, but you'd have these like dongles that you plugged into the, the the cat five ports in the wall, and then you connect the telephone, and then you'd have a separate point for your network cable. And I remember when we implemented Nortel voice over IP. Um, and it was like, what? The the phone can go on the same cable as the network. That was that's the biggest shift. Uh, I think that now what's happening in the networking industry uh, is the biggest shift since then, in my opinion. I would agree. Um, um, and I want to I want to make a, a a couple comments on on the, uh, the analog shift. So. You know, before before VoIP was a thing, right? Before the phone network moved into the networking network, networking network inception. Um, before that happened, right? Um, I don't I don't know how important the network was. I don't, you know, that that shift I think was the beginning for most environments, most companies to prioritize the network. And now, I mean now it is a commodity. Like it is, it is a utility. It is, you know, you have power, you have water and you have the network, you have your internet, right? You have your, your, your network must stay online all the time. And those are just, in my opinion, unstated requirements. Now you you must have a network and it must be up and running. And it's a matter of how much availability do you need now? Like it's how much, not that you need it, you need it. Like it's, but how much do you truly need? How much are you going to pay for it? Um, and that's a huge shift, right? That's a huge shift. The VoIP started that. And here we are now where we're talking about cloud and and honestly, just applications and services, right? Because that's the underlying thing with a network is getting users to their applications. VoIP is an application as well, right? It runs on top of the network. It's a different type of application. So the network is literally just getting you or your users to the applications and the data to the application and then back to you. And that's really the underlying implications of the network nowadays. I want, that, that was my, my one th- thing, right? And then my next thing is, um, so we talked about acquisitions. We talked about divestations and I, I they are the hardest thing to design for. Um, truly they are. And it, it takes a lot of, uh, time and effort and energy to design for both of those situations. Um, but you mentioned something and I wanted to talk about this. So a lot of times when you're having an acquisition, the company, your business is going to force you to do a short-term plan. What is that short-term? Get get that new, that new application, that new device, that new offering online right now. And so you're not going to be able to do all the the pretty things that you want to do, the you know the normal standardized design things. There's going to be single points of failure. It's going to be things that aren't optimal. Maybe you're going to be spanning layer two. Maybe you're going to be doing some funky routing or leaking of routes to get it to work. I've got a good example on on something that I've done for yeah, that. Yeah. Then so um, a merger that I worked on, which was a huge you know, multi-billion pound or multi-billion dollar acquisition. I won't mention any more than that, but it was two organizations. I was on the acquired side, but it was in the region of high tens of millions, eh, billions, sorry, not millions, billions, high tens of billions for the acquisition. And it was around about 
350 sites or 400 sites on our side and 700 sites on the acquiring side. Wow. So we went from 35,000 users and 400 sites to then being part of a 1,100 user no, that's no, not right. The sites, right? Let me let me let me, <laughs> let me do my math again. Eleven, right? So three hundred. Sorry, thirty thousand. I'll get it. I'll get it eventually. You got it. Thirty-five thousand. Thirty-five thousand users on acquired side. Seventy thousand users on acquiring side. So a hundred and five, a hundred and ten thousand users in total after the merger were completely different systems, completely different networks, completely different PCs. And this is where this this chat could go on for days. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because, seriously. Because you, you, you don't even like I never thought about it until I was in the position. And we were at the point where we we're like, oh yeah, we can do this, this, this in the network. However, we can't really because the until these PCs, so if you go down to the actual PCs and the laptops, until they're re-imaged with acquiring or the company who's making the acquisition, their desktop image, then they won't be allowed to go on to the new network. Now, what we had to try, in the interest of time, I'll try and condense this a bit, but if you think that you had two completely different MPLS networks, we had 1,100 sites, so the 700 merging with the 400, and 110,000 employees, the 35,000 with the 75,000, and we had two completely separate networks. One was a pure MPLS, the acquiring company. So the acquiring company had 700 sites with effectively active standby MPLS. No internet. The other site, the other company were quite forward thinking and they had an, a, a variant of SD1, let's say. An early, mm-hmm. let's say SD1 0. <laughs> something. Right? Yes. And they had overlays and they had internet breakout at sites and things like that. And they had a, a way, one of these web proxy things for people to uh, break out. And they also had an MPLS. The merger was that we had to agree or find a way to interconnect. So we had three NNIs globally one in each of the global regions. So the Americas were actually North America and Canada and LATAM, but for the purposes of the NNI, LATAM had to use the North America and Canada NNI, and then there was an NNI in Asia-Pac and an NNI in Europe. And these NNIs done two things. If you think of like smaller company and bigger company, some servers from the smaller company, if you think of there on the left-hand side, the small company and the bigger company is on the right-hand side and there's data centers on each side, how it started off is we're going to move this specific application from the left to the right into one of our data centers, so the company who was, who was making the acquisition. 
and all you need to be able to all. I'm using using air quotes here, but all that needs to happen here is that we need a HTTPS connection to that to that server. So we had like firewalls and network to network interconnects. So that's not too bad, right? Then what we had was we want users from that side to be able to work in those offices and that side to work in those offices. So they wanted to then start working between offices. How are we going to do that? Okay, we need to configure the wireless LAN controllers at those sites to have a GRE tunnel across to the radius server and the other network, but that has to go through the firewall at the NNI and all that kind of thing. So then you see the the, the complexity starts stepping up a bit. And this the, isn't stuff you want to do, though. Like This isn't stuff you want to do from a design perspective. These are tactical. These are tactical. Uh, I mean, we, we, also, we also had to re-IP the whole network oh, on the yeah. left-hand side. Yeah. In order to avoid IP conflicts, but that's that's probably one for another day. But <laughs> you know, so so you see, it starts off as like we just need to access that server over HTTPS in that data center. Fine. The next requirement was now we need some users going, so some execs going between both directions. Okay, that's how we 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 put an SSID out from the controller, and then we um you know create this like tunnel over to the, the radius server on opposite side. So it might be ice on one side uh, and then clear pass on the other. So the so so for your SSID, we'll advertise that and it authenticates against your clear pass. And on the other side, we'll advertise our SSID and it authenticates yeah. over the NNI to the ice. And then the third thing that we got into, and this was all like rolling. So it was like, now we need you to do this. Now we need you to do this. And the business requirement is, make that application available was the first one. The business requirement for the second one was we need execs, only execs to be able to go between for meet, uh, important meetings and things like that. And then the third one was, uh, right, now we're going to start doing building consolidation and rationalization. So if there's two offices, one for company A and one for company B, both in the same city, for example, they will merge into the bigger office or the one that's got the longer lease. The problem that we had is they were both, they could be in the same building for all we know, but but they're on different MPLS networks. Oh, you got to get new MPLS? And, oh, wow. Yeah. So so what we done is on the, on the strategic MPLS network that was staying, we got the provider to create a VRF for the company that was being acquired. And then that, then you could communicate back and we tagged those routes with, with communities and then it only accepted the routes with those communities into our old network. And then from the other side, because we didn't, we, that other MPLS was going away, what we done instead was GRE tunnels in the opposite direction because then we didn't have to get the provider to, to, do to actually um, do, the, yeah. do the, the core configuration. So that's, there's three merger acquisition type scenarios and again that's only it's only the tip of the iceberg yeah, i mean there's three the examples there's three examples right there and they're i mean the first one might be an easy one right it might be actually an easy one potentially potentially but the other two it's like okay we have to make it work that's the short-term goal right the business wants it done now right that's that's the key and so you've got to make it work but you don't always have time to go back and do it right either 
So it's well, like, they, and that and that's another they did because the next step after that was like right, re-IP the whole network yeah, yeah, and get the, a yeah. <laughs> get an MPLS link, get an MP because they, they couldn't order the new MPLS link that was on the acquiring company who was making the acquisition. You couldn't move the site onto their network until the site had been re-IP'd, and then we had like you know had to re-IP everything, even OT networks. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Hey man, oh, yeah. Malcolm, yeah. Uh, this has been truly great, buddy. I-, I knew I'd get you back on here someday, and-, and we'd have a good conversation. And I did not know that we'd be talking about global, global um, scale network design, though. Um, any any kind of last minute thoughts, opinions, questions, uh, views for the listeners? No, I think I think that um, the 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 takeaway is probably. As I say, there's, there's there's so much more that you could talk about, but we need to try and keep it within the within the time scale. The the key takeaways that I would say are, if you ever get the opportunity to work on a global scale network, take it because it might be like even if you're in a service provider or a VAR or whatever, you're getting loads of variety, and you get that opportunity. Believe me, you will learn a lot. So a don't lot. think because it's an enterprise and you're jumping over that you're like, oh, I'm leaving all the, the, the cutting-edge tech behind, you will learn a lot, and you'll learn different things, and you will definitely grow from it. Um, and then the other sort of key takeaways that I would say is planning and understanding understanding your applications, which has always been, what applications have you got? I don't know. That's pretty much the standard question for the last 20 years, like uh, or 15 years uh, that, that you get and it's like I don't know but it's never been more important that to understand your applications and the flows than now especially in any network but especially in global networks so think between the regions um, and also think that one size is never going to fit all region you can have a framework but you're never going to have like one size fits all design and that's never going to vary away from that um, and then the other thing is, yeah, the scaling aspect to it, and um, you're gonna have you're gonna have some fun in games, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it takes a lot longer, but it, it's the the final thing probably is like stability is key, St- predictability and stability is key. But again, that doesn't mean to say that you're just going to get to work on boring stuff. You're still going to have to evolve the network to new technologies but in a stable way but absolutely recommend working on these types of networks to anybody if you ever get the get the opportunity and that's coming from someone who used to like the intricate nitty-gritty um lisp otv type designs across multi-vdcs and i've just moved to this and it's like it brings different challenges so that would be my my closing comments and if anybody wants to continue the conversation. As I say, I'm quite easy to find on social media. So thanks for hosting me, Zig. Uh, it's great to catch up and we'll need to continue the, the conversation if I see you at Cisco Live or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe we'll do another one if you're up for it. I know you're really busy with everything else going on. This could have been like a three-part episode, man, right? Like, let's be real. This could have been like a three- or four-part episode. Um, so you already said where everyone can find you. I do want to highlight real quick, you you do have a course. Can you go ahead and talk a little about your your course real quick? Yeah, so we've I've 
in the last year or so, so it's uh, twenty twenty one at the moment, and um, we have developed a a training site really, um, and we have a couple of courses. One's called Network Design Fundamentals. It covers hit the high points. It covers uh, gathering requirements. Um, what else does it cover? Gathering requirements, high level designs, low level designs how those are structured, how to write them, gives you examples, templates, things like that. And then also two other topics that people sort of raise their eyes at, really, network design fundamentals, but migration plans and test plans. So plenty of examples in there. And then we also have a WAN design course, which has um, WAN technologies, so the difference between MPLS, L2VPN, L3VPN, point-to-point, VPLS, all that. And then it covers like using those all together, um, SD-WAN design, global scaling of WAN networks, and then WAN migrations and things like that. So that's uh, that, that's it in a nutshell. It's just training.mnbnetworks.tech, but you can put the put the link in there. Yeah, no, I, I think it's awesome, man. You know, I think there's a, a gap in the industry for a lot of this stuff, a lot of this training and, and really, truly teaching people network design. So um, for everyone that's listening, I will have all those links in the show notes. If you're interested in learning about network design, I mean, we go take a look at Malcolm's training. Um, it, it truly is amazing stuff that's out there right now, uh, hands down, one of the best. And Malcolm's a great, great, uh, instructor. Um, he's been a great friend too for years. So, um, maybe I'm biased, man. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little biased. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate that. Bigging, bigging me up. I'll, yeah, I'll buy you a pint. I'll buy you a pint later on. All good. Um, no man, we're just passionate about this stuff. Right. So I'd rather have more network designers, right? Like I want more people in this field. Like this is, this is great stuff. Um, once again, Malcolm, thank you for everything. I really appreciate it. Taking the time. I know it's late your time. Um, I think this has been great. Um, I hope you have a good night, man. Thank you. Thanks very much. Speak to you again soon. Hey, friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets. That's going to close out today's episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where we talked about global scale network design with Malcolm Budin. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 92. My friend Malcolm has just launched his network design course. So if you are in the realm of wanting to learn real-world, real-life network design, you should go check out his course right now. It's training.mnbnetworks.tech. If you want to have live network design conversations, join the ZigBits Discord community. There are a ton of highly skilled experts ready to help you with your network design questions. Go to zigbits.tech slash discord to join. It's a 100% free community. If you liked today's episode, let us know. You can find more ZigBits network engineering, network design, and network architecture content, including technical podcasts, monthly webinars, YouTube videos, and a dedicated community on Discord. All of this content I just mentioned is 100% free content. You can find all of this and much more at zigbits.tech. Follow us on Twitter at ZigBits and find us on LinkedIn. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter, the Network Design Digest, filled with the best network design content in network engineering today. That's at zigbits.tech slash newsletter. As always, I appreciate you and I thank you for listening. Don't forget, my friends, to attack your goals, attack the day, attack your life, and make progress. Until next time, bye for now.